Jeremiah chapter six, verse 16 says this. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good, ever shout good? good. Ever shout good? good? Come on, ever shout good like you're good? good. <laughs> where the good way is and walk in it. And watch what happens when we walk in the good way. This is what the Bible tells us. You will find rest for your souls. Now we're gonna go to Matthew chapter six, verses 19 through to 24. This is Jesus speaking. He says this, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eye is healthy, well, you see things, your whole body will be full of light. But if the eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? Verse 24, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. A lot of people think that this verse is disjointed and weird, like Jesus kind of schizophrenically jumps from dealing with money to dealing with eyes to dealing with money. And actually, it's all holding together because what he's saying is simply, where your, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. And then he switches the way you see this thing has massive implications on how you do this thing. And then he makes sure that we understand that we can only serve one thing at a time. You can't serve both God and money. So that's a quick breakdown of how this verse works today as we continue on in our series, Saving Sacred. I want to speak to you from the subject, moths, rust, and thieves, oh my. Moths, rust, and thieves, oh my, as we look at the ancient path of sacred stewardship and the power and purpose it plays in our lives. Will you pray with me just one more, one more time today? Jesus, we love you. We give you this time. We ask that you would speak to us right now, that these would be your words, not my words. And God, we know that as we open your word, your word brings truth, and where there's truth, there's freedom, and who the sun sets free is free indeed. And so today, I ask that you would set us free, especially in this area. God, that you would help highlight and challenge and change and shift our perspectives, our thoughts, our emotions, our desires when it comes to this issue of resource and finance. We give this time over to you today. Speak to us now in Jesus' mighty name. Come on, and everybody shouted. Hey man, I've got three kids. Two of them are moving into understanding how to deal with money. I got an 11-year-old and a nine-year-old, soon to be 10-year-old. And uh, we're starting to see that they both operate very much like we do. I think they've gathered our personalities. And just, just out of like, just let this be a therapy moment. How many of you in the room would consider yourself more on the frugal side of things? You hold back, you kind of save and keep things in line. Show hands. Okay, four, five, six. Okay, cool. Where are my spenders at? I just need to show hands. Okay, there we go. The first service, I, they were all spenders. Uh, so... Um, we all have different perspectives and personalities. My nine-year-old, she actually saves money. And she reminds us almost daily. The other day it was, Dad, I've, I've got $57 now. And then she's like, no, actually, I think it was 55 because I gave money at church. That's what, that's what she said. My son, on the other hand, has zero dollars. <laughs> 
And right now, he's going down the path of trying to convince his sister to buy things for him, <laughs> right? Right now, he wants some Nintendo Switch controllers, and so he keeps on going to her. He's like, Shiloh, Shiloh, like, hey, like, wouldn't it be cool? Like, he's trying, wouldn't it be cool if we had more controllers to play with? And she's like, I'm not spending my money on this stuff. So he's, he's negotiating some things right now. But as we've watched them, Erica in our home, she is more of the person that keeps things in line. She's steady in this way. We, she's very much a saver and trying to uh, make sure that the future is paid well for where I'm a little bit more like party, right? So, and, and, and we work well together, okay? And keeps me in check. And so we work through this process and our kids kind of have developed the same personalities, whether it's from seeing us, their parents, or whether it's what they hear or, or seeing the world around them, they're influenced in certain ways. And the truth is that it's no different for each of us in this room and online today. We all have different priorities, personalities, and perspectives that inform and define what we do with our resources and finance. That is why this is an important topic for us and why it is, in fact, a sacred one. And Jesus would line it out. He would say, listen, I need you to understand something. This is just the Bible talking and Jesus saying this, your heart and your money are closely connected. Come on, can I get a witness in church today? Okay, now I know this is a subject matter that gets difficult to talk about in church today, but if you've been around here long enough, there is no topic off limits here at the well. We will dig in and we, and, we, and we will go for it. So I need you to lean in today. This is more of a, I'm gonna give you lots of information that so hopefully you can walk out of church today and you can work through it and, and, and pray about things and, and seek God on it because everything that we are dealing with today ultimately is about our hearts before it's ever about our wallets. In a survey called the Mind Over Money Survey done by Capital One and the Decision Lab, their findings were telling concerning Americans and money. I want you to listen to some of these statistics. 77% of Americans report feeling anxious about their financial situation. 58% feel that finances control their lives. 52% have difficulty controlling their money-related worries. Americans are most worried about their financial future, which includes not having enough money to retire, 68%, keeping up with the cost of living, 56%, and managing debt levels, 45%. And the impact of financial stress that it has on Americans stretches into all aspects of life. Respondents say, 43% of them, that they feel fatigued by it. They find it difficult to concentrate at work, 42%. And they have trouble sleeping because of it, 41%. A quarter of respondents, 25%, said financial stress affects their relationships. When we do pre-marriage counseling, there are two things that we say, three things that really impact marriages, especially negatively, communication, sex, and finances. Those three things are what we've found to have the greatest implications upon marriages, relationships, and so forth. Here are a few more facts done by a recent study uh, by the Dave Ramsey Group. Americans as a whole owe more than 1.2 trillion in educational debt, with the average student loan hovering just under 29,000. Meanwhile, the average car loan has had an all-time high at more than $30,000. And that kicks the average monthly payment past the $500 mark. With the average American facing monster debts like these, it's no wonder people rely on their credit cards, which, by the way, have an average balance of more than 15,000, and there are more than 1.4 billion open credit cards in the United States alone. Now I can feel the, the tension in the room. But before we start stressing and feeling any type of way about this, let me give a qualifier. This is not a conversation to bring shame. This is a conversation to bring freedom. 
Let me say it one more time. This is not a conversation to bring shame. This is a conversation to bring freedom. Because this, these statistics are telling me that one of the greatest reasons that we actually don't feel freedom is because of the financial situations that we experience. Yet, we have a tendency to stay away from this from a biblical angle, and I'm always confused as to why. Because I have found that Jesus wants to bring freedom to every area of our lives, not just the faith part of me. Not just the soul part of me, because I can find freedom in my soul. I can be eternity bound. I can have the grace of God in my life, but still live in this world broken and defeated because I haven't figured out the financial thing. So that's what we're working through today, because this concept of of stewardship is important. I love this thought offered to us by the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary concerning stewardship in our lives. Says this, the biblical concept of stewardship beginning with Adam and Eve and developed more fully in the New Testament is that God is owner and provider of everything, of all that we possess. Since all belongs to him, it's incumbent that all be used for his purpose and glory. A collective responsibility was given to mankind to have dominion over the earth, care for it, and manage it for his glory. Individually, whether financial resources, real property, other valuable items, time, influence, or opportunity, the believer is to seek the mind and will of God in every decision. He expects for all that we have to be used in ways which please and honor him. He expects that we, regardless of vocation, will exercise responsible stewardship on his behalf on every single day that we live, understanding that his his kingdom will come, but to live in such a way that it's already here. So that's why we can come to this truth right here. If you're taking notes today, please write this down. Stewardship is first and foremost about our hearts before it's about our money. Everybody shout money. money. Come on, everybody shout money. money. Everybody shout mo money, mo pro. I'm just kidding, don't say that. <laughs> Jesus has an ancient path for us. And stewardship is a real issue. And I've just found as, as your pastor, as I engage in conversations and I engage in people's lives, I found this to be a very real issue as much as it is with what we'll be talking about next week when we talk about the Sabbath. It's a sacred path. We talk about prayer. We talk about worship. We love those things, don't we? You're like, yeah, please, let's get to the worship message. But what we do is we, we take certain compartments of our life and we put them here and we say, God, those are off limits to you. You can have the praise part of me and the faith part of me and the prayer part of me and the Sabbath part of me, but please don't touch this part of me. When really the truth is from a biblical understanding, he wants every part of us. Come on, somebody. He wants everything that we are so that all aspects of our life bring glory and honor to his name. So what I want to do today is I want to take a look at what I'm calling the four pillars of sacred stewardship. Four pillars of sacred stewardship. This is what we build our financial lives on. And uh, I'm going to poke and prod at some things, but uh, just continue to stay with me. We'll get there. All right, so here's the first pillar. Every shot number one. The first pillar is this, proper management. Proper management. Proverbs chapter six, verses six through eight says this, go to the ant, you slacker. (laughs) I love the Bible, it's just so straightforward. Observe its ways and become wise. We're gonna do a whole series uh, right after Easter uh, on wisdom, we're gonna be launching into a series called Act a Fool. And uh, it's gonna be all about wisdom-based living, so get ready for that, it's gonna be a lot of fun. Verse seven, without a leader, administrator, or ruler, 
It prepares its provisions in summer. It gathers its food during harvest. Proper management is where we have to begin when it comes to the financial area of our life. And I know for some of us, we get that right now. We say, well, yeah, of course, that makes sense. But the funny thing is we have a tendency not to do it. See, we understand things from an educational point of view, but I just wanna ask the question, are we really ready to engage it from a practical point of view? Now, once again, this is not to bring shame. This is not to bring frustration. This is to help us open up and and realize that the Bible talks about these things. And here's what I've come to discover. When we do not properly manage things, then we miss out on so much of what God has for us and what he actually wants us to be able to do. See, the path of sacred stewardship is a path that is paved with proper management. Now, uh, for the sake of time, I'm not gonna read this entire scripture, but I want you to write this down. Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. Matthew 25, verses 14 through to 30. A lot of Bible in this message today. And this is gonna be a story that Jesus is gonna tell. We call them parables. And he would illustrate some things, making up stories. So he would talk about a, a, a master who would give his servants multiple denominations of money called talents. When he would give five, two, and then one, two. And they would go off and they would do something with it. They would, and it doesn't tell us exactly what they would do with it, but it says that they would use it and they would steward it and manage it appropriately. The guy with five did it, the guy with two did it, but the one with one buried it. How many of you recognize this story? And, and Jesus would go on and he would tell the story as the master would come back, he would engage in a conversation with these guys and he would applaud the one with five who went and did something. He would applaud the one with two who went and did something and then he had a pretty strong conversation with the guy who went and buried it and he's like, what'd you do that for? That's not what I asked you to do and he was like, oh, I was a little scared of you. You're a bit rough sometimes so I just wanted to make sure that you had it. Here's your one. He's like, nah, that's not how we roll. Now, a lot of people, if you've been in church, especially those of us who maybe come from church backgrounds or those of us who maybe look at the church with a little bit of a jaded and cynical approach, we'd say, this is a verse that has been used to to push this idea of prosperity. How many of you have heard that that term before? Prosperity, teaching, so on and so forth. That is not what this scripture is about. It's not about prosperity. It's nowhere in there. Why? Because the servants didn't own anything. It wasn't theirs to be prosperous with. This is a a, a parable on stewardship. This is a parable telling, see, the owner, the master, did not give the servants something now of theirs that they could go do something with. He said, because you did with mine what I needed you to do, I'm gonna give you more of what is mine to do what I'm asking you to do. It's a responsibility thing, it's a steward thing. And when we have the biblical understanding and the, the mind's eye on this issue, we start to realize, wait a second, none of this is mine anyways, it's on loan from God, and I have the responsibility to steward it well. Come on, is anybody with me in church today? So it's not a prosperity scripture. And I know a lot of people, like, I believe in God blessing us. Come on, somebody. I love that. Like, I love that idea. And I do believe that God does it. But I've given for a long time in my life, I still don't have six pack of abs and a million dollars in the bank. (laughs) I know, right? Come on, anybody with me? And what happens is we get really confused is because we think God's sole purpose is to bless us. And we think about it one way. He's like, listen, no, if you steward things well, I'm gonna give you more responsibility. (laughs) Not necessarily a blessing. 
Because I want us to reframe it because remember, when it comes to this whole financial conversation, God is after our heart, not our resource. It just happens to be that our resources are very closely connected to our heart, right? If you don't believe me, give me your wallet right now. No one, no one moved. <laughs> See, this is a hard thing to come, to come to, though, because we live in a culture that values autonomy, independence, and individualism. So for us to actually believe, we're like, wait a second, I earned that. I went to work. I did that. So we live in this space called duality, which is we compartmentalize our lives, failing to realize that the totality of who we are as Christ followers is God's. He works in every area of our life. So we can't segment an area out. If we talk about relationships, which we're going to do in this next series coming up, and we talk about sex and sexuality and relationships and all of that stuff, we're not going to do it from an idea that we're segmenting that part of us out. We have to do it from the framework that God is intrinsically involved in all of it. You guys see what I'm talking about? So that's why this is an important conversation. So when it comes to financial responsibility, when it comes to proper management, something that I've come to realize is that most people want to be generous, but we have a tendency not to be able to because of this issue. Here's the truth. Justice costs money. Come on, somebody. Justice costs money. I've heard it so many times. Well-meaning people who want to see change in our world, yet at the same time, are unwilling to literally put the money where the mouth is. See, most stop at good intentions, but good intentions don't open homes for women who have been rescued from trafficking. Good intentions do not build homes in Mexico. Good intentions do not feed the homeless, take care of orphans and widows. Good intentions do not provide school supplies and gifts at Christmas for those in need. Good intentions are simply that, empty-handed hopes to change the world. And we can all run around with the ideas of the things that we want to do. You know what the, the difference between a good idea and changing the world is? Action. Do you know how many cool inventions I've come up with? Come on, sitting there on the couch, like how many of you have got, you've probably got a great invention. You know how many good inventions I've come up with? None of them, I haven't done any of them. Why? Because the little space in between called action. See, but proper management of this area of our life gives us the ability. Am I helping anybody out today? I can't tell, listen, I'm not a financial advisor. I can't tell you what to do. Go to a financial advisor. We have one. Go to smart people that do the math for you and everything like that. I'm just trying to get the biblical foundation for us to understand that God wants us to be stewards yeah. and good stewards at that. Yeah. Number two, every shot. Number two, faith-filled obedience is the second pillar. Faith-filled obedience. Now, I got a lot of information on here, so I just need you to lean in with me today. Uh, I read the craziest article the other day about John Densmore. He was the longtime drummer for The Doors. Listen to what he said. He wouldn't call himself a Christian, and he learned this principle from John Lennon, of all people. Some of you don't even know who those guys are, and I'll pray for you later. <laughs> Some of you do. John Densmore, longtime drummer for The Doors, took up tithing after John Lennon praised it in an interview. Years later, Densmore mentioned in an essay that tithing helped him resist greed. He wrote, during the Oliver Stone film on our band, the record royalties tripled, and as I wrote those checks, my hand was shaking. 
He would go on to play in front of, he would say in front of all of these people that he would play in front of the scariest thing that he would do is engage in tithing. And he wasn't even a believer. In an article called The Stewardship Dilemma, the author writes this, tithing is not a luxurious option achievable only by those whose financial security is assured. It is the ancient spiritual practice that God uses to begin setting our priorities right, to heal our hearts of greed and fear, and to draw us ever closer into his own boundless generosity. (laughs) I love that. Now, to be fair, let me qualify it. There are those who believe that this idea of faithful obedience when it comes to the tithe It stopped in the Old Testament. Scripturally, if I'm honest, I do not see this to be asserted or supported. Now, you may say, well, you're the pastor. Of course not. It benefits you. Let me qualify this. It doesn't benefit me at all. And here's why. Because we have a board and we have financial obligations in the way that we do things in a healthy way. So I would encourage you to come figure out what that looks like here at the well. And so I get to freely talk about these things with no strings attached. And I love it. Because my job is to be your pastor today. So there's a lot of heat surrounding this subject. Great division and contention amongst people, both a part of the local church and and not a part of the local church. And our ability to appropriately define this reality has to come from the truth of Scripture. Everybody shout Bible. So I'm I'm gonna attempt today in the next little bit to not give you my opinion, but let's walk through the Bible. Can we do that today? Does everybody still like me? Everybody shout broccoli? Brussels sprouts. All right, so where does this tithe, like (laughs) tithe, where does that word come from? Well, like biblically speaking, it comes from the Old Testament and it literally means, the word means a tenth, all right? And this is what the, the children of Israel and the, and, and the Jewish people would engage in as a part of their faith. The earliest mention of it in the Bible is actually before the law was given. And it came from a response from Abram's heart in Genesis chapter 14, verse 20. The first Mosaic law on this subject is recorded in Leviticus 27, 30 through 34. It says this, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It's holy to the Lord. Now let me just rapid fire machine gun this for a second. Other areas of Old Testament scripture referencing the regulation and the breathing of the tithe in accordance with Mosaic law is found in Numbers 18, 21 through 24, Numbers 18, 26 through 28, Deuteronomy 12, 5, 6, 11, 17, 14, 22, and 23. And that's just a small snippet. Now, I love this piece of scripture in Hezekiah, or Hezekiah in Chronicles chapter 31, five through six. As soon as the command was spread abroad, the people of Israel gave in abundance the first fruits of grain, wine, oil, honey, and all of the produce of the land, and they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything, which then brings us to the most popular and quoted pieces of scripture referencing the tithe, Malachi chapter three, verses eight through 10. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and your contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. And then he says this, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, said the Lord of hosts. If I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. How many of you have heard this scripture before? A lot of us have. 
It's an interesting piece of scripture, one that I would love to just start preaching all of a sudden. And I can get all excited about this right here and say, see, God's gonna bless you and he's gonna do all these things and, 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 and he's gonna make it rain from heaven. <laughs> the problem is, is that many of us have engaged in tithing and you'd say, where's the rain? So there's this, this thing right here because what we've done, especially in American culture, Western culture, we've engaged in this idea of that God is a transactional God with us. If I do, then I get. If I do, then I get. If I worship, then I get. If I read, then I get. If I pray, then I get. If I fast, then I get. If I give, then I get. The problem is, is that many of us have done this, done that, done this, done that, no get. Why? Because God's first and foremost after your heart, not your action. He's trying to produce something else in you. See, for many of us, it's really easy to write a check. It's a whole lot harder to give our heart. Some of us actually engage in generosity in this area and we do it with frustration. So I need us to understand now, moving from Old Testament to, to New Testament, in between Malachi and Matthew, ranging about 400 years we have the onset of Jesus who, who brings a new covenant, and that covenant is based upon his grace and his forgiveness. That's what we celebrate. But it's upon this definition, this reality, that there's a lot of confusion surrounding a lot of the things in the New Testament. So Jesus, in Matthew 5, clarifies some stuff for us. Listen to what he says, verse 17. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I've not come to abolish them, but I've come to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And therefore, whoever relaxes on one of these, of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So what Jesus is saying is, listen, not one action that you can engage in will earn your love. Can I just set a bunch of people free today? This is not a message to try to get you to give. If you walk out of here and don't ever give, don't ever engage in this message, that is fantastic. We are totally good with that. And God doesn't love you any more or any less. This is not a sin issue. If you don't give or you don't tithe or you don't engage in stewardship, you're not sinning, you're not doing something bad at the end of the day. That's what's hard for me, because how many of you are like me? You love rigid rules. Tell me what to do. I have a health coach right now, right, who's focusing on our eating and our working out. I'm just like, tell me what to do. He's like, well, you guys can kind of decide. I'm like, no, 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 uh-uh. I don't want to decide anything, because I will decide donuts all day long. <laughs> Let's be real about that. I decided Oreos last night. I keep talking about Oreos in my messages. <laughs> you guys see what I'm talking about? This, this is the whole, like, he gave us free will to decide whether we were gonna engage in relationship with him or not. That's the new covenant. He's after our heart. And so when it comes to the tithe, we have to understand that this isn't earning something from God as much as it's proofing what has already been earned. Many other areas of the New Testament where Jesus would affirm the tithe. Matthew 23, 23, Luke eleven forty two, Luke 18, 9 through 14. All affirming this truth. How many of you are thankful that 
but Jesus didn't get rid of the thou shalt not murder part. Right? Or the love your enemies. These are all things that come from the Old Testament. It's just our issue with certain things makes us regulate some things to the corner and not others. We like the whole grace thing, but we, lo- we hate the whole give thing. You guys see what I'm talking about here? So I'm trying to help us just understand what this looks like. Again, at the end of the day, we can easily write a check, but can we lend our hearts? The tithe, as well as many other sacred paths that we will talk about, they're not about salvation and eternity, they're about design and purpose for the here and now. And it's in the place of reliance that we find true freedom and blessing. Now you may say, Jason, these are uncertain times. The economy is fragile. We've just experienced a global pandemic. Jobs are scarce and I don't know what tomorrow holds. You'd be right, 100%. But listen to what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. In chapter 11, verses four through six, he says this, one who watches the wind will not sow and the one who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you don't know the path of the wind or how bones develop in the womb of a pregnant woman, so also you don't know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, do not let your hand rest because you don't know which will succeed, whether the one or the other, or if both of them will be equally as good. Faith-filled obedience does not look at the wind or the clouds, but rather looks to the one and trusts the one who created the wind and the clouds. Here's the third pillar. Here's the third pillar of sacred stewardship, specific anointing. Specific anointing. Romans chapter 12, verses three through eight. See, lots of Bible today. I wanna make sure you hear this. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone, this is Paul speaking to the the Romans, everyone among you who do not uh, think highly of himself. Do not think more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Talked about that last week. According to the grace given to us. Ever shout grace? Okay, according to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. In giving, with generosity. Leading, with diligence. Showing mercy, with cheerfulness. So this issue right here, specific anointing, is for those of us in this room today who are psychotically generous. (laughs) Have you ever met that person before who sniffs out moments to be generous? No one's ever met that person before. Come on, show how many of you, how many of you know that person? Where they're like, they're the type of person that they'll, they wanna pay for the other person's meal that they don't know. They're just like, hey, bless that table over there. Make sure you take care. They're the ones that always take care of the server, no matter how good or bad they've done. They're the one who just looks for every single moment to, to be generous, to engage, and to help. I would argue according to scripture, those are the people that have the gift of generosity. That is a spiritual gift that causes us to see things differently. When you hear about something that needs to be done, boom, you're on it. When there's a fill a need, have a need, fill a need, like we have on our website, the team that's around that, they get involved because they're just people that say, if you have a need and you hear somebody who has a need, I wanna take care of it. I love those people. It's a gift thing. This is our legacy team here at The Well. A group of people who feel and understand that they have a specific gift set about them in order to resource the advancement of the kingdom of God. 
on this earth. It's an amazing team of people. They wanna use their resource and all that God has given them to make things happen. Just as much as our musicians do or our singers do or those with the gift of mercy. Because some of us in here do not have that gift. So that's the cool thing is that when we understand that the body is made up of different people. My wife, is she always wants to buy people gifts. Always. And not just at Christmas, any other time, the middle of July. Hey, I wanna get these people a gift. And she loves gifts. (laughs) And when people give her gifts. (laughs) But she's always looking for ways to be generous. That's what it means when Jesus was talking about if your eye is light and dark how you perceive these moments. So the Bible talks about the other area of of sacred stewardship is specific anointing. And then here's the last and final one. If we wanna find ourselves on the sacred path of stewardship, it's sacrificial giving. Not all of us have the spiritual gift of generosity, but all of us can engage in sacrificial giving. I wanna take you to a piece of scripture as we close today. Are you all with me still? Come on, online, are you with me still? Matthew 26, six through 16. Says this. While Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. If we pause there, I could do an entire message on that one sentence. Because I want you to see where Jesus was at. While Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the Ebrishad leper. He was in a place he he shouldn't have been. By history and heritage, Jesus shouldn't have been sitting at this table. Now the party's about to get real weird because what happens is in verse seven, a woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume and she poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. Now remember, we talked about this last week. Remember the reclining, they, they kind of sat at the table like this. I want you to get this picture. He's sitting at a table with Simon the leper. And this woman comes with an alabaster jar. I'm not talking about the little things that we get at, the, at Macy's or Nordstrom. I'm not talking about that type of perfume. You know that easily sprayable? <laughs> I'm not talking about that. An alabaster jar. And this woman walks up behind Jesus and she dumps it on his head. Now, many of you would be extremely frustrated in that moment because this type of perfume was not the misty type of perfume that we're used to. It's not Coco de Chanel. Right? This is perfume de la oil. And when she poured this out, it ran down him. And the smell filled the room. And it was this beautiful moment where this worshipful act was taking place. And then watch what happens. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why were they indignant? Well, the Bible tells us. It's not because Jesus was assaulted with perfume. (laughs) They were indignant because they said, why this waste? This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. And aware of this, this is what Jesus says. Remember the guy who we said loves everybody? 
Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. You always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. By pouring this perfume on my body, she has prepared me for burial. And truly, I tell you, check this out. Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be also told in memory of her. Her sacrifice would always be heard about. Her sacrifice would be told to the world. That's what sacrificial giving does, is at the end of the day, when we engage in this type of reality, it changes the atmosphere of the world that we're in. And one of them was so angry about it. The man called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? Because they could not fathom this type of man. Sacrificial gifts. I call this giving that hurts. Doesn't inflict real pain, but rather brings a necessary and faith-filled stretch in our lives. Now, no one's saying be unwise or irresponsible, but we are talking about having faith. Today you walked in and you have this cardstock card on your seat. This is our legacy offering that we've been talking about. For those of you who call this place home, for those of you who are kicking the tires, checking things out, please just chill and listen. But this is our moment of sacrificial giving every single year when we prepare to put our hand to the things that God has for us. This is how we open Redemption House. This is how we build homes in Mexico this year. This is how we give away last year in 2020 and upwards of $150,000 to people who are in need and to take care of people and to reach out to people. That is how this takes place. So we have to understand that sacrificial giving is what paves the way to do the things that we believe that God has called us to do. And here's what I've come to realize. Sacrifice never looks sane to those who prefer safety. Let me say that one more time. Sacrifice never looks sane to those who prefer safety. The great author C.S. Lewis would write this concerning this issue, and I close on this. He says, when being asked, what does sacrificial giving look like? He says, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. If our giving habits do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be the things that we want to do but cannot do because our giving expenditures exclude them. Sacrificial giving is the way of Jesus. It's the way of the cross. So let's land the plane on this message. The broccoli, I almost said tater tots, that would have been good and Brussels sprouts message. I don't know what you do with this message today. For some of us today, we are being invited to take a next step. And for some of us, that is the big step of learning how to manage what we do have. For some of us, that'll be starting the journey of, of getting out of debt and working towards better principles and learning to live within the boundaries that we have financially, such a big step. And I would tell you today, if that's a space that you're in, don't even think about the giving portion yet. Let's work at the management portion. 
But for others of us today, we've got that thing in order and now we need to engage in obedience. That's the step for us. And that's hard because we're used to doing things our way and, and, and walking on a path that we've been paving. And today we're being introduced to an ancient path, a sacred space where God says, would you trust me in this? And for others of us today, we got lit up when I started talking about being gifted with generosity. You're like, ooh, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? That got you excited. If it didn't get you excited, you probably don't have that gift. <laughs> and then for all of us today, no matter where we're at, as we move forward, getting ready for our legacy offering on March 21st, I would ask and challenge you to pray and consider what it is that you can do. I know we have. Our family's already been planning. We've already been engaging and getting ready to do this. I wonder what you could do. I wonder how God would use your hand in this moment as we once again set forth to be the church that God's called us to be in this valley and beyond. As we get ready to do the things that God has called us to do and continue helping the people that we've been called to serve right here in this valley, in our nation, and in our world. Today, you're being invited onto the sacred path of biblical stewardship. And I hope today that we can be the type of people that take all this information and go away and say, God, what is it that you would do in my heart and in my life in this moment? In Jesus' mighty name, I'm gonna ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that it's alive, it's active, and it's powerful. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, the truth is that this message starts and ends with Jesus. The Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he gave. It was radical generosity. It was generosity that sent his son to the cross. It was generosity that sent his son to the grave. It was generosity that kept him down for three days. And it was generosity that got him up out of the grave. And it was from that generosity that you and I have forgiveness and grace, salvation, and eternity. It's generosity. It may have not been the way that we view it, but at the end of the day, it was generosity that was for you and it was for me.